As we come now to the scripture uh, and to hear it read and to think it through, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray now that you would help us, that you would enable us to understand the scripture and believe reading this day from the gospel of John and John's intent by the Holy Spirit was that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And but by believing in his name, we might have life. So please, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, cause this very purpose to which you put John to pen and that you would cause it to be true in our lives simply by the reading and meditating upon your word. May it show itself, may you show yourself to be all that we need for life and for godliness. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 20. I've already read some from John chapter 20 this morning and we'll return to it, but I want to read verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, please. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that... You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we mentioned, this is Holy Week, and, and we sometimes, many of you just were faked out of your shoes or out of your Bibles last week as you turned to James as the service began. Sorry about that. But uh, there isn't couldn't find anything in James for Holy Week particularly. So so we, we went to another place for just this week. We'll get back to James later. But but but, but as, as this week uh, dawns on us, comes to us, uh, we begin to think through um, the passion of our Lord Jesus. And we've taken up the Gospel of John for the week. And last Sunday I read these two verses. And, and this Sunday again, and we'll talk about um, how John um, um, fulfills them really in his writing. But uh, but last week, really, on Palm Sunday, we went to John chapter 12. And then for our Monday, Thursday services, we looked at John chapter 13 and 16 and 17. And then for our Good Friday services, uh, chapters 18 and 19. And so what I want to think about is these early verses that I read a while ago in John in chapter uh, 20. Uh, and what we found is we just simply looked from the Palm Sunday account and then again on Monday, Thursday and what we observed on Good Friday is that there are many things that the disciples of Jesus didn't understand until after the resurrection. There are many things that the disciples of Jesus didn't understand until after the resurrection. For instance, we noted on Palm Sunday that John said that he didn't really understand how the prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled on that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem. That and, and thus, then, as he recounts it to us, recounts that uh, situation, he, he quotes from Zechariah <clears throat> and Jesus coming in on a donkey. And, and, and we can then flesh that out and understand that, that as Jesus is coming in on this donkey, he's coming to make peace, and he's coming to make peace in righteousness and humility. Righteousness, to make things right by his own righteousness. His righteousness that then is 
given to us. And in humility, as he comes to give himself, to give himself to death on a cross, that we might be forgiven our sins and live. And so, so John would understand all of that, put that all together as we can, after the fact of the resurrection, after he sees it, if you will. And then on Monday, Thursday, we realize that Jesus comes to Peter and he says, you're not going to understand what I'm doing here. He's going to wash his feet. And he said, you're not going to understand what I'm doing this. And Peter proved that he was right. He didn't understand. Uh, he didn't understand really that there's cleansing through Jesus and we must be cleansed by him in order to be reconciled to God. We'd, we'd get that after the resurrection, after it was all done and after Jesus came and explained it. And then, and then even Jesus said, I, I, there's things tonight I want to tell you you won't be able to get. You simply can't bear them. It's too emotional, too heavy for you at this moment in time. But I'll send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth will come. And he'll teach you all things. He'll, he'll take that which is mine and give it to you. And so uh, the Spirit would come. And when the Holy Spirit would come, and, uh, and, and, and they would know these things. And they would write these things so that we could have them uh, as well. And then on Good Friday, it, it was just clear that the disciples of Jesus didn't get what was happening? They, they ran instead of remaining to see the glory of God in Jesus, even on the cross. Jesus, I'm going to be glorified. And, and that, that included the cross. It was the very glory of God. And they ran from it as opposed to stay there and to see it. Uh, they didn't get it. They would afterwards. Oh, that's what took, took place, you see. And then even today, notice verse 8 in the passage I read from John chapter 20 earlier before. It says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Yet, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, when, when, when Peter and John, remember the story that I read earlier, you should be listening. I'm sure you were during all the service. I don't need to reread that. We'll come to it. But, 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 but when Peter and John went to the tomb and John looked in and he saw and went in and saw the grave claws and all of that, he believed, but, but not because of what he had been taught from the Old Testament. At that point in time, he, he didn't understand the scriptures taught, the Old Testament scriptures taught, that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, must rise from the dead. Now, there's various aspects to this we can sort of, sort of uh, pull out of this. Number one, they never understood about the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus would tell them what was going to take place, they just, they just didn't get it. For instance, in, in, in Mark and chapter 8 and verse um, 32, uh, Jesus tells them about his, his going and, and all of that. Uh, verse uh, 31, uh, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes uh, and, and, and be killed and after three days rise. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, Peter said, no, 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 that, that, that isn't what's, what's going to happen, uh, you, you see. Uh, that isn't what's going to happen. And then in chapter 9, uh, of verse uh, of, of, of Mark's gospel, verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he'll rise. But they didn't understand the saying. 
and they were afraid to ask him. They, they didn't really get it even then. And not only that, they wouldn't have any category in their brain for a resurrection. Uh, in, in the sense that theologically nothing set them up for that. For instance, in the days of Jesus taught by the Jewish teachers, uh, some taught, the Sadducees, taught that there was no resurrection at all. That's why we say they were very sad, you see. Uh, they had no hope, all right? Wow, that's an old one. Uh, but uh, you still laugh, it's amazing. Uh, but, but they were very sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed there would be a resurrection, thought there would be a res- resurrection, but that this resurrection wouldn't happen until the end of time, the end of history. There'll be one big, at the end of time, resurrection, and that would be that. Would be that. And you say, well, why didn't they believe in some kind of resurrection? And they had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. Lazarus, for instance, would have been fresh on their minds. But, but remember, that wasn't a resurrection in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. That was more like a resuscitation. In other words, Lazarus and the others that Jesus raised came back in their regular old bodies. Frail bodies, they, they, would, they would die again, you see. But resurrection meant there would be no more death after this. The resurrection body is a body that's imperishable, you see. And so that's it, and, and would reflect, resurrection, would reflect in their minds, as per the Pharisees, would reflect in their minds this sense of a new order of things. Something now is significantly different. In the resurrection. And they would never expect that to happen in the middle of all this. If, if he was going to be raised, then that would be the end of it. But, 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 but what, does, what does resurrection mean in the middle? Or at least in the time of this, of this age. And finally, they didn't really understand what the Old Testament taught about the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, probably in their favor, we could say, as far as we know, they were never taught about it. If you read through the Gospels, there isn't a long discourse by Jesus about the Old Testament passages which showed that he would rise from the dead. They didn't have it. Um, and, and you know as well as I do, uh, if we didn't have the book of Hebrews and certain other passages in Galatians and so forth, it would be difficult to be able to figure all that out on our own. But we have those great passages in those books of the New Testament. It says, St. Augustine said, uh, the new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. And so as we come to the New Testament, as we read what we have post-resurrection, post-Holy Spirit coming, and we read what the insight that they had then... Uh, we can really understand it. In fact, one of the key things that Jesus did after he was raised was teach his disciples. Remember in Luke in chapter 24, we have it like this after the resurrection. Then Jesus, uh, chapter 24, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem and your witnesses to all of these things. You see, it was that that point he opened their minds to understand. It was that point he took them through it. It was at that point, after it was all said and done, when they had seen it, if you will, that they could understand it. And so this moment in time, when John looks into the tomb, he doesn't... He doesn't have Old Testament passages running through his mind saying, oh, yes, of course, this is exactly what he meant by that. He's stating there, I didn't understand it at that point in time. That's very, very important for us to understand, to see. Now, they would, of course, in, in, in the first preaching, for instance, in Acts in chapter 2, when Peter uh, preaches on what we call the day of Pentecost, what was the day of Pentecost in the Jewish feast celebrations, when the Holy Spirit came, this is after Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit comes, uh, he preaches uh, to them and he, he cites Old Testament uh, passages. For instance, he cites Psalm 16, verse 8. This is, uh, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse oh, where 25. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, and then he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwelt in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life and you filled me full of gladness with your presence. All right. Jesus must have taught Peter. And the Holy Spirit brought this to him. This is about the resurrection of Jesus, that he's raised from the dead. And then he'll go on. Brothers, uh, I may say to you with confidence about my patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him uh, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110. So you see, it was, it was Jesus who taught them this. It was the Holy Spirit who brought them. At the moment that John looked into the tomb, he didn't have these verses coming out of him at all. And in fact, Peter then would later write as well in, in the first epistle of Peter in chapter 2 concerning this living temple that was in Jesus who is the one who is alive. He writes verse 7. So... Uh, uh, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a rock of stumbling and a rock and a rock of offense. That stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone is Psalm 118, verse 22. And so that's about Jesus, the living Jesus, the cornerstone Jesus. By the way, the next expression, verse 23, is the one that says this, you know what? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice And be glad in it. The day that Jesus becomes the cornerstone is the day the Lord has made. And that's Easter. We're to rejoice, if you will, and be glad in it. And so anyway, John didn't know it at that point in in time. And so Jesus is dead prior to this uh, passage in John chapter 20. Uh, We read of this the other night on our Good Friday service. Um, He's put... 
uh, in a tomb, at the end of chapter 19. He's put in a tomb, we see. And, uh, and, 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 and he's really dead. I mean, that's certainly true, you know. The, the, the Romans were very good at execution. And, 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 what, and, and all of this, you see, fits with how John is laying this out. Remember, I read uh, for our text, really, this passage in, in verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Uh, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life uh, in, his, in his name, you see. Um, and, and what John wants to do here, ultimately... Is, is to write so that we, all his readers, would have life, eternal life. Life from God. Life knowing God. Life in the presence of God. Life breast, blessed by God, you see. Not, not just living forever, oh, it's that. But it's living forever in the presence and knowing and having the assurance that you belong to God, you see. Thus, if God is for us, who can be against us? There needn't be any fear. There can only be hope. And then real life, you see, as we live it out. And then a future existence where everything reflects God, you see. There is no sin. There is no evil. There is no crying. There is no death. There is no mourning. There is no fear. And to live real life, you see. That's what he wants us to have. And the means for us to have that life, he says, is that we must believe. We must have faith. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then, in order to believe that, he says, let me convince you by these particular signs. If we read just through the book of John, we can divide it up into two parts. Uh, the book of signs, verses or chapters 1 through 12, and the book of glory, verses 13, to the rest of the book. That's how it's normally laid out. If you read a commentary on John, that's how it will be organized most likely because John lays out these signs and he wants us to see through those signs those signs are supposed to point us to the fact that Jesus really is the Christ the son of God yes as he points out in his opening chapter he's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning and this very one who is the very expression of God who is God comes and lives among us, takes on flesh, that incarnation. And he wants us to know that this one, this incarnate Jesus, really is the Son of God. And so how does he, how does he present that to us? He does it through a variety of signs. Now, in the New Testament, there's uh, three primary words that, that are used that surround the miracles that we read about. One is the word power. Dunamis, as you know, the word power. And these miracles show the power of God. No question about that. They are the power of God. And then another word that he uses often is the word wonder. Because when these miracles happen, we sit in awe and wonder. It causes us to think about God and who he is. But the third word that's used surrounding these miracles is the word sign. And that's what John is presenting to us. These various signs. So as we read the Gospel of John... We're not just getting that which is verbal, but also that which is visual. He wants us to see something all the time. Not simply listen, not simply read it. He wants us to see it. These signs, and these signs then point, signs point, you know. 
So we've said so many times you're riding down I-70 and you see a sign that says Kansas City, 35 miles. You don't stop at that sign. <laughs> that would be crazy. And the sign would say to you, Psst, you're not supposed to stop here. I'm just telling you where you're going. You see, I'm a sign. I'm pointing to something else. And so these are signs. They point to something else. And so we're to see these and say, what's this pointing What's this telling me about Jesus? As we mentioned last week, just very quickly and quickly again, just to kind of catch us up. uh, These seven signs, the first one, he changes, Jesus does at this wedding in Cana, water into wine. We don't get much explanation of that other than this shows his glory. And you get the sense since the water that he turns into wine is in pots for purification. That's the old order, the old way. And now you get Jesus is bringing abundance of joy in a new way as he changes it. And then we see a couple of healing miracles. There's this royal official whose son is sick that Jesus heals from a distance. Not too much description there. But then we see this man who's by a pool and he's an invalid and he wants to get in the pool because the, the tradition is if you get in the pool when the angels stir the waters, then you'll be healed. Jesus heals him. But he heals them on the Sabbath. And that upsets everyone. And the religious leaders, uh, after they listen to Jesus, they think, well, he's making himself equal with God. And Jesus says, oh, that's right. Because I've been given authority by God. I don't do anything that I don't see my father doing. I don't say anything I don't hear my father saying. And I have authority over life and death. I'm the judge and I'm the giver of life. Oh, Yes, of course, he heals. He's that one. And then he feeds 5,000 with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish, fishes. And, and, and he feeds them. And, and he's saying, in a sense, that I'm the manna of God. I'm, I'm the bread of life. Uh, you have a spiritual hunger. Everyone does. It can't be satisfied other than through me. Oh, yes, John is saying, look, he's the son of God. He walks on water. He says, I know this isn't uh, the way it normally happens, that, that nature normally just sucks you in when you step on water. But, but, but no, not for me, because I'm above it. I'm greater than even this whirling sea. And then he takes a man who has no eyes and he gives him eyes that he might see. And he says, I'm the light of the world. Seeing you really can't see anything. You really can't see God unless you know me. You can only see him as you see me, as you look, understand, know me. So, and then Lazarus, he raises him from the dead. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. See, I have power over death. And, and John gives us all of that visual as signs so that we'll see Jesus and, and his plan, his hope. The Holy Spirit says, listen, if you lay these out like this, John, and you say it like this, John, then people will read this and they'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's come from God to reveal him. The prophet who is the truth, the priest who intercedes by his own sacrifice and life. And he's the king who rules over all things, even life and death. They'll see it, John, if you lay it out like this. Well, then we come to the next section of the book of John, beginning with chapter 13. It's called the book of glory. Glory, that is, you'll see it. 
And so as chapter 12 opens, we saw this last Sunday, Palm Sunday, that scene of the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And then after that, an interesting thing happens. A couple of Greeks come to the disciples of Jesus and they say, we want to see Jesus. But rather than them saying, all right, I'll make an appointment or all right, Jesus is over there, go talk to him. They say to Jesus, there's these Greeks who want to talk to you and Jeeks, uh, they want to see you. And, and, and Jesus says to them, his disciples, oh, they'll see me because I'm about to be glorified. In fact, everyone's going to see me because I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up. And they expect to see the glory of, of Jesus. But in this week we call Holy Week, it seems anything other than glorious, especially as the week comes to an end. They, they see Jesus Arrested and tried and the lies that are perpetrated against him and the conviction that comes. Everyone seems to condemn him. The religious leaders condemn him. The political system condemns him. And then he's put on this cross to die. And that's where we find ourselves, as I mentioned a moment ago, in chapter 19. Jesus is dead. They put him in a new tomb. John wants us to see all of this, you see. He's not just simply verbal, he's visual. He wants us to see this. And he wants us to see this in such a way that we'll believe that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's the giver of life. And so you see, as as John lays this out, Jesus is really dead. He's really in a tomb, you see. And, and, And their burial practices were different than ours. They would take the body and and they would uh, uh, put spices around it and wrap the body up and put it in a tomb generally this one was a walk-in to put it in a tomb uh, and they used the spices so when the body would decompose it would deal with the odor of the spice of the of the body decomposing and then after a time when the body had decomposed they would go in and they would take the bones that were there and they would take them and put them in something and put them in a different place so that tomb could be used for someone else so that's the sense of this where jesus is in this tomb now Let's walk through chapter 20, the first 10 verses quickly. And now, Mary Magdalene comes to this tomb on the first day of the week. Now, it's interesting, at least to me and to others, that John doesn't say it was the third day after Jesus was crucified. I mean, that's the way it's always been put on the third day, on the third day, on the third day he'll rise. But, but, but he doesn't say that. This is the first day. You know, I don't want to make too much of this. But for John, as I mentioned before, chronology is often theology. And so here he is on the first day. Now we know the significance of the first day. Here we are on the first day of the week. And every Sunday, what do we do? We think about Jesus. And why? Because he's, ra- he's risen and he rules and reigns. But there was also something else. It was always the first day after any great feast. And the first day any, after any great feast was a day that if, if there were t-shirts given after the great feast, they would say something like, this is the first day of the rest of your life after the last great feast until the next one. Uh, that's why I never made a living doing t-shirts. But, um, but that's the sense of it. Well, this is the first day. Something great has happened. And now this is the first day of it. It's really, if we could just be really corny for a minute, the first day of the rest of everything. Right? The first day of the rest of everything. And he Mary Magdalene. Now it's difficult if you read through the gospel readings of this, uh, of the resurrection of Jesus, and I trust 
you'll do that today if you haven't already this week. You should be reading through these narrative passages of Jesus and this last week during this week. It'll bless you. If you haven't, catch up and do it. But, but, but uh, it's, it's hard to harmonize them who went where with whom and who was at the tomb at this time or that time or the other time. Because each gospel writer has a purpose. John uh, has a purpose to highlight this woman, Mary Magdalene. Now, all the other gospel accounts have her going to the tomb and so forth. Uh, we don't know if they went once or twice or, or how that is. She even expresses we, and so perhaps there are other women. John doesn't see the need to report them at all. He's just interested in her. She's a fascinating person in the New Testament because seven demons were, were expelled from her by Jesus. And then she became a follower of Jesus and a supporter of Jesus even financially, it appears, and the disciples as well. And so there they are all. Mary goes to the tomb early that morning. John doesn't say exactly why. But then she looked in and it was empty. She presumed someone had taken the body of Jesus. That was her initial response. So she comes and she finds Peter and John. And she says, come and look. And so Peter and John come to look. And as they begin to run, um, John um, seems to pass Peter. He just missed the other disciple, the disciple Jesus loved. It must have been a middle child. Uh, disciple that Jesus loved. and um, uh, But he doesn't give his, his name. But, but everybody thinks it's John. They always have. And, and so he outruns Peter. Now my elementary school flannel graph teacher, uh, when I was a kid, his name was Mrs. France. She also taught my dad when he was a kid, so you can imagine uh, what I thought of her as an older woman, uh, to say the least, when I had her. And uh, Mrs. France said that the reason John passed Peter was because he was younger. Mrs. France knew things. Uh, We don't know why he outran him exactly, but he did. And then we see that John looked in but didn't go in, but he saw the linen cloths lying there. So please understand the tomb isn't empty. That's important. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Now, Mrs. France said the reason that John didn't go into the tomb is because he was waiting for Peter out of respect for the older one. And the reason Peter went in was, well, you know Peter. And then she took the next few minutes describing one of the boys in our class, how he was like Peter as well. So Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the faith, faith cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the others, but folded up in a place by itself. Mrs. France said that Jesus had been taught well by his mother. Um, so you get the picture that they're lying on this slab, I suppose, in this tomb where, where, the, where the first all the cloths that they had wrapped Jesus up in and, and they were in the spices. And it appears they're laying there neatly. Um, and then the face cloth, which was separate, was, was folded up. And then after Peter went in and saw what he saw, then the other disciple, presumably John, who reached the tomb, went in and saw and believed. Now remember, John, as he's writing, is visual. He wants us to see. Now I don't want to make too much of this because very often, especially in John's gospel, he uses a variety of words synonymously. 
So we don't want to take off too much on, on his changes in his words. But since he's so visual, it seems like the word see would be an important one to him. And many take this line, which seems to be helpful. helpful. And that is he uses, John does, as he writes this three different words for see in the Greek language, each which has a nuance that could possibly go like this. When John first looked in, he saw, and the particular Greek word there gives the impression as he simply looked objectively, he looked, he had impression of what was there. He saw it. But when Peter went in, uh, John looked in, when Peter went in, uh, he, uh, John uses a particular word that, that, that means um, we get our word theater from it, that he saw something and began to think about what it could mean. Or uh, we get our word theorize from this particular Greek word as well, that he, he began to ponder what it could possibly mean. And then finally, John went in, and here he uses a particular word that means he perceived or he understood it in the same way that you and I might say, I see it. And thus, then he believed. But what is significant, and I know this may not be as thrilling to you as it is for me, but it's thrilling. As you think about how John is laying this out in these various signs, he wants us to see. And so he makes the point of saying, the only reason why I believe is because of what I'm seeing. It isn't because I had this preconceived notion. It isn't because I think this fit with the Old Testament scripture. It isn't because of what I've been taught. I just looked in there and I believed the only explanation of what could possibly have taken place here is that Jesus has risen from the dead. I mean, it couldn't be grave robbers because, well, frankly, robbers aren't that tidy. I mean, why would they leave the grave clothes behind? Well, you say they wouldn't want to carry all the heavy spices, perhaps, but come on. I mean, they, they wouldn't just lay it. Who would fold up the little napkin in the face and put it over in the corner? No, no, it wasn't the authorities who took the body of Jesus. They too wouldn't have left the claws like this, no doubt. And of course, what, what reason would they have to take him? And if they had a reason to take him, they wouldn't have any reason at all not to show him later after all this big fuss had been made about Jesus rising from the dead. And, and surely the disciples of Jesus wouldn't have stolen his body. Wouldn't Peter and John known about it? And, uh, and even if they were in on it, and this is a lie that they're writing later, why would they do that? Why would they write? And why would they live? In such a way that would cause them to be killed for such a lie as this, if it were such a lie as this. Now, the grave claws, you see, are very significant in the midst of this because John is telling us, I want you to see this. I want it to be a sign for you. I want you to, to see these grave claws in there, and I want you to see he's risen. And if he is risen, then he really is the son of God. He really is the Christ. If this is the new life that he ushers in and only he can usher it in. Now we said in the past, and this is, a, I think, a helpful way to think this through on an Easter Sunday. We said in the past, the primary reasons, evidences for the resurrection of Jesus is number one, the disappearance of the body. Number two, the reappearance of the Lord. And number three, the emergence of the church. You see, just an empty tomb or a tomb, not empty, a tomb with grave claws, isn't final. 
Because if Jesus never appeared, we never saw him, we just had the grave clothes, wouldn't you be scratching your head all the while? Where did he go? What did he do? Where is he now? And you might even begin to think, well, maybe the grave robbers or maybe the authorities who took the body or or maybe they're neater than I thought. Maybe he... uh, But you see, with the grave claws in the tomb and the appearances of Jesus, you say, yes, of course. There he is. So the appearance, if you will, of the Lord, the disappearance of the body and the appearance... Of the Lord. And then finally, of course, the emergence of the church. What would would cause all of these cowards, really, all these fearful men, these men who ran literally for their lives, one who denied Jesus, even knowing him, what would cause them to change in such a way that they would have the, 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 the guts, if you will, they would have the courage to say, In front of everybody, he's risen, we're going to follow him. And even if you kill us, we're still going to say that. I mean, there's something at least must have happened in the midst of this. One novelist, a Japanese novelist, said this. If we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then we're forced to believe that what he did hit the disciples. What he did hit the disciples uh, was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. In other words, something must have happened. And the disciples of Jesus say, he's risen. That's what happened. That's what changed literally everything. But John said, I didn't realize, he didn't understand that he must rise from the dead. I mean, on the one hand, they didn't realize he would be killed because they didn't understand a crucified Messiah. But they didn't understand that there was something connected between his death and his resurrection. He must be raised from the dead because you see the resurrection of Jesus vindicated Jesus in fact in Romans in chapter 1 the way we have it there is this Paul writes that he's a servant of Christ Jesus he's called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh And declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, this resurrection vindicated Jesus. It declared him to be the son of God. You see, everyone else had declared him to be one worthy of death. The religious authorities said he is a blasphemer. The political authorities said... He deserves to die. God said, no, he doesn't. He's worthy of being raised to newness of life, this new life, and to be raised as the king to rule and reign. How else would we know if he hadn't been raised? How else would we know? And not only that, if he hadn't been raised, then we would think That he must have died for his own sins. But he didn't. The reason he could be raised was that he didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. He paid for the sins of others. And once that was really finished, he was free to go. Once he died, once he paid for the sins of sinners, then he 
was free to go because he had no sin in himself. So his rising is proof that the father accepted the sacrifice of the son for the sins of you and me, for the sins of others. Does that make sense to you? It must, you see. That's why he must rise from the dead. If he stayed dead, then it would mean he must have died because he himself had sins too. But he didn't. And so he rose. And in his rising, he declared that he paid, you see, for our sins. And you see, that's the point of it, isn't it? That he died that we might be forgiven. Do you know that unforgiven people are never free? You're always in bondage to the one you've hurt. You can never look them in the eye. And you see, we've offended God. And until we're forgiven, we're never free. We can never look to him. We can never look up. We can never seek him. Because we know that we've offended him. Remember David saying, after he had sinned tremendously in ways that included adultery and murder and lying, he said, really, my sin, God, is ultimately against you. And thus he sought forgiveness from God. And so to be free to really live, we must be forgiven. And how can we be forgiven? By God. Well, Jesus connected forgiveness to his death. In fact, as we celebrate communion, we hear this expression, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, this is for the forgiveness of sins. He connects the two. How do we know that? (laughs) We know that because he said it. And we know forgiveness is real because he was raised from the dead. Because in being raised from the dead, he paid for the penalty of our sin. That we might know it and really know that our sins are forgiven. That's why Jesus said to his disciples at the very end, he, he spoke to them about what was to come. And he he taught them from the scriptures. And at the very end of all that, he said, This is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You 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 can pronounce this. You can tell people there is forgiveness of sins. You can tell your friends there's forgiveness of sins. You can tell your children there's forgiveness of sins. You can tell your parents there's forgiveness of sins. You can tell yourself there's forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. But not only that. There is a great future hope. Because in his resurrection, he's the firstborn of those who will come, who will follow up to him. All those who believe in a day will come when he'll return. Even as he rules and reigns now, there's a day that he'll come and he'll return. And when he returns, he'll renew the earth. And God will live upon it with his people. All those who've believed in him. And everything will reflect God. I mean, no more sin, no more wickedness, no more tears, no more crying, no more dying, no more hatred, no more fear, 
No more sadness. No more want. But it's even good for us in the present. Because there's power to us. One author put it like this. He says, is it possible for selfish people to be made unselfish? Is it possible for immoral people to be given self-control? Is it possible for cruel people to be made kind? Is it possible for sour people to be sweetened? Is it possible for fearful people to have courage? And the answer is yes, because there is this power that comes by way of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to those who believe, those who are given life. Uh, Paul puts it like this in Philippians in chapter 1. He prays that he may know him and the power of his resurrection. He may know the power of his resurrection. In fact, he even prays, Paul does in this way. In Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, this power that raised Jesus from the dead is the very power of God that is at work in all those who believe. And so we're not left alone. We're left given the very power of God that we might live. You see, for Christians, this means everything, that Christ is risen. If he hasn't, the apostle says that our belief is simply in vain. We're still in our sins. There's no hope for those who have died and those who will. But because he's raised, we realize that all of this is true. That he really is the Christ, the Son of God. And there really is life by believing in his name. But for those who don't believe, don't you wonder about this? Don't you about wonder about the life in which we live? Don't you wonder how there could ever really be any change, really be any hope at all in the life that we see really before us. Your heart long to be able to look to God, to know him, to be reconciled to him, and to be forgiven your sins, to have hope and to have power really to live, you see. To live in ways we're not naturally inclined, but ways we know that we ought to live. That, you see, I would leave with you. The Apostle John says, read my witness. Read of these signs, most particularly the grave cloths that are left in the tomb, that you may believe and have life. Let's pray. Father, for all of us, I pray that you'd grant us grace, that we would know you, that we would believe Many today, I trust, amongst us, I know among us, who are suffering in various kinds of ways, give them this resurrection hope, God. 
for those who suffer with illness, with disease, who feel pain on this day from physical pain or from emotional pain. I pray that you would grant grace to know this resurrection hope and the resurrection power to live. Father, for those who do not yet believe, I pray that you would enable them to see and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Again, I remind you, there will be elders available to pray in these pews off to my left in the front of the sanctuary. Please uh, take uh, opportunity to pray with them this morning. And please now receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through his everlasting covenant, may that God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, both now and always, through our Lord Jesus Christ and together.